0: And if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew 28, <clears throat> we will look at the resurrection of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew today. And we're going to ask the question, sort of how, is Ma- how does the story in Matthew stand by itself versus how does it stand with the broader story? Because Matthew is a book of the Bible, <clears throat> it's written to sort of be coherent all by itself, but it's also part of a story that began long before Matthew wrote and continues all the way to this day. So how does Matthew stand by itself, and how does it, how does it sort of stand together? If you think of it this way, we're sort of in the age right now where, whether it's Netflix or one of your pay channels... Instead of making a feature-length movie, now we're into the age of the seasons. You, do, you watch a show, you know, season two of a show, and I'm not going to say a show because either you'll judge me or <laughs> I, I just don't see how I can win from that. <laughs> but you'll, you watch your season of your show, and each episode in the season connects to the following episodes. There's a little bit of a cliffhanger. So you're watching one episode of whatever it is, and you get to the very end, and it ends with this problem, and, and it's all done that way for you. So you go, I can't wait till next week. Or so you buy the whole season and binge, right, on a weekend, because they end and they just call you in to the very next episode. But each episode also has to stand all by itself, because they have to be singularly consistent. Well, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is a little bit like that. It's it's consistent in and of itself. It stands alone, but it also stands together. And the way, the way that the resurrection of Christ is handled in Matthew, at times makes you want to look elsewhere, and at times forces us to say, why did he do it the way he did? And So we're going to look at that because if you have your book, your Bible, open at Matthew 28, what you may note is that maybe even the Gospel of Mark is on the same page. It's the end of the Gospel and there's 20 verses in Matthew 28. So we have 27 chapters of Matthew about the life and death of Christ and then we have 20 verses about Jesus after he's risen from the tomb. Think of that imbalance. Think of that proportionality. 27 chapters. I mean, chapter 26 has like 50 some verses in it. 27 chapters of the life of Christ. Jesus is resurrected. 20 verses and we're done. It's abrupt. And there really are not a lot of details that will be given here about his resurrection. So let's begin by... And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel of the Lord said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, I I don't mean this in a way that would belittle or marginalize the passages we read, but I do want to point out there's not a lot of detail here. It's a little bit sparse on detail. And if we were reading Mark, we would get a little bit more detail, but the truth is uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ occupies 20 verses in Mark also. The whole book of Mark is the life of Christ, 20 verses on on the resurrection. We could read Luke and we'd find out a little bit more not a lot more, a little bit more. But for the most part, there is something that's consistent among the gospel writers, which is by the once you get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they seem content in letting you know it happened and it was witnessed. That the resurrected Jesus met his followers. And then they seem content to end the episode. That seems to be enough for their work to stand alone. Jesus has risen. I mean, essentially, if we walk away from these first 10 verses, we walk away with the basic sense that Jesus has risen and that he has encountered his followers. And that's about it. Let's read another section. We'll read five more verses and then we'll sort of see how this stands together with uh, the larger story. It says this, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when the priests had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So Matthew has told us two major things. Well, Jesus is alive and he and was seen by his followers. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that the reports of his resurrection were suppressed by the opponents of God. Um, the priests. He's, he was alive, and yet the information has been suppressed. And you know, we get ten minutes on his resurrection, or ten verses, excuse me, on his resurrection, and five verses on sort of the, the opposition. Any deeper interest in this, at least in the book of Matthew, is going to go unmet. There's not another page. If you're looking, you can see we have five more verses in the whole book. This week there were questions that arose about this just in conversation. Some people asked, well, I was visiting and someone asked, How could the priests and the guards and those people involved in the suppression of truth, how could they go for very long without it bubbling up inside of them? Like How many many nights could you go to bed acting during the day like someone stole his body when you knew an angel of the Lord appeared in an earthquake who was dressed white as snow and you fainted? And truth be told, the guards don't actually know what happened to the body. They were uh, they were asleep by that point. I mean, they had unconscious by that point. But still, the grandeur of what happened—how could you suppress the grandeur of all that for very long? Well, the broader story says, suggested it's not well suppressed. So if we see how Matthew stands alongside of the other books of the Bible, the book of Acts tells us, okay, so this is what Acts tells us, Jesus is risen, and for 40 days he remains on earth, he teaches his disciples about the kingdom of God, and then he ascends into heaven, after which point the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, and they proclaim the gospel at Pentecost. Pentecost. And when they proclaim the gospel of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to know the Lord that day. Now, it's easy because Matthew's here and you've got to do a lot of page turning to get to Acts. It's easy to think that Acts is a year later, two years later, some other era of the Bible, but it's not. Acts starts as Jesus is ascending and the Holy Spirit or Pentecost happens a week after that, or a week later. So, Within a week of Jesus leaving, there are 3,000 people in the city who believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, the movement immediately takes, takes a foothold. And in fact, by that sixth chapter of Acts, which is maybe months later, okay, so days later, there's this huge blossoming of faith in the city. A few months later, in Acts chapter six, we, we're told by that point, a great number. It says the church is multiplying greatly. And it says a great number of priests became faithful to the message at that point. So months later, many of the very people who were involved in the act of suppression of the message and life of Jesus Christ are turning back to the Lord. And by Acts 17, which might be a few years later, this is what they say. This is what the opposition says about the disciples. It says they are turning the world upside down. If you wonder, how could this stay hidden for very long? It didn't. The suppression of Jesus Christ was a total failure. Someone else also asked this week, like, why don't they go back to Caiaphas and bust on them? You know, the high priest, like, ha-ha, Jesus is risen. You were so wrong. Or whatever you'd say, you know. Why don't they go back? This is the time. Why is, you might say, why is the resurrection the end of the book and not the middle of the story? Why doesn't Jesus come out and proclaim his victory in the face of Caiaphas? Well, for one, you know, God is not a trash talker. And Caiaphas is just a man. Christ died for all all of mankind. It's not personal in that sense. So it's a thought. Two. That does happen, by the way. It happens. So Jesus ascends into heaven. And Acts, this is what Acts tells us. Jesus ascends. A week later the Holy Spirit comes. That day the church explodes and that's Acts chapter 2, okay? Acts chapter 3 says this. One day Peter and John are walking along. Okay, this is days later. Let's give it a a couple weeks later, okay? One day Peter and John are walking along. They come across a lame beggar to which Peter says to him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I freely give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up. And the beggar rises and is no longer lame. And when that happens, This massive crowd of people are drawn to the miracle, and they pile in, and then Peter starts to preach because he has their attention. And so he's explaining the power of the resurrected Christ to them, and it says, in that whole process, the number grew to 5,000 people. And you know what happened? He gets arrested by Caiaphas. The priests, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and Caiaphas, they haul Peter and John into a room. Think of this. Think of this from Peter's perspective. Maybe three weeks ago, I denied my Savior when he was on the cross. And now I'm standing in the room of his accusation. And he speaks. What we see here is by itself in the Gospel of Matthew, this abrupt. It's thin with details and it's abrupt, but when standing together with the broader story, there, there is a broader story that it's feeding into. Let's look at one other one other passage. There is only one other passage. Let's read verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. They all go up to Galilee. That's quite a ways north, and they wait. Jesus meets with them, and we know from Acts, for 40 days he teaches them all about the kingdom. We don't get any of those teachings about the kingdom. I have this longing that I'm going to die with of what did he say for 40 days? Okay? I'm going to die without the answer. We get one teaching essentially. The, whatever it was, is Matthew f- felt fit to condense essentially to the Great Commission. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. And I'm with you. right? 40 days of teaching, Matthew says, and it was pretty much like this. One sentence. And incidentally, if you go to Mark or Luke, they end the same way. They essentially give you the Great Commission. It's slightly, worded slightly differently, but it's essentially the same thing. If you go to the Gospel of John, this is how John ends. John says, if I were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, like I don't think the whole world could, could hold the books. But I won't. That's the end of the book. It's the end of the Gospel of John. Is, I'm not going to. But man, he did a lot. <laughs> we have this teaching. Just this teaching. I think we should remember when the apostles are writing, maybe what we should see here is the apostles clearly see That the resurrection of Jesus Christ completes what Christ came to do. And now is the time for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the story has been told. And when Christ rises out of the grave, it's enough. It happened. It's been witnessed. And it's in that, right, in that that the Holy Spirit comes. And so it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that sort of picks up. If you're thinking, how does this episode fit with the larger episode? It's the resurrection of Christ, the victory of the resurrection, that gives way to the welcoming of the Holy Spirit. And from that point on, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work. So, for example, when Peter and John are drugged before Caiaphas and the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and they say, they say, how is it that this man was healed? Peter says, this man was healed. By Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God resurrected. And when he says that, right before he says it, this is how the text is introduced. It says, and full of the Holy Spirit, Peter opened his mouth and said it. Full of the Holy Spirit. There might be some sense in us that, you know, it's easy to be... You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit is downplayed. It's easy to be Jesus-centric and want the ministry of Jesus to continue. But the gift of God being is God the Father, Christ who does the work, right, is resurrected, and now the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's sort of how Matthew feeds into the larger story of God. That's how it stands alongside of the other accounts. But the question I'm going to end with is well, how does it stand alone? So I understand that ministry of Christ, he was resurrected, the Holy Spirit has been offered, which is why you and I have hope. But just by itself, the Gospel of Matt, 27 chapters of the life of Jesus, 20 verses about his resurrection. Why so little? I think that to Matthew, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like the punctuation on a sentence. Have you ever read a sentence? Take the dog outside. You could put a question mark on the end of it. Take the dog outside. Or you could put an exclamation point on it. Take the dog outside. But it's the little thing at the end. It's this tiny little character that sits at the end of this long sentence. You could have a 27-word sentence with one character at the end, which sets the whole mood and sound and power of the sentence. It, it owns how the sentence will be read. And I think for Matthew, that's what the resurrection of Jesus is. He doesn't need to give you more words It's the punctuation at the end that forces us to re-examine all of the life of Christ. He's told us, this is what Christ has done. He's risen from the dead. Now we can look back on the whole gospel of Matthew and understand the very nature of the man who just rose from the dead. It punctuates it. It lets us know how we ought to understand it. So Matthew chapter 1, we have this long lineage from Abraham all the way down to Jesus Right And and the writer, Matthew, is trying to connect. Jesus is an ancestor of the promise of Abraham and is an ancestor of the promises given to David. Jesus is in the line of David. There's all of this prophecy and hope, all of this here. And Jesus is in that line. And if you're just reading it, you say, well, sure. And he, there's several people who could be in the line of David. No big deal. But this man was resurrected. In Matthew chapter 2, We have wise men who come from the east who are looking for someone they've never seen and never really heard of, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And Herod, King Herod, has enough fear in him that he wages a campaign of death to try to stamp out this man. Now, it could, I suppose, be anybody, but this man was resurrected. It punctuates it. Matthew chapter 3, you get a whole account of how he was preceded by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, someone's coming who will be both the savior of the world and the judge of mankind. And the person he's talking to happens to have been resurrected. Matthew chapter four, Jesus, he who was pushed, fled in the spirit into the wilderness where he was sorely tempted by the enemy, by Satan himself, continually for 40 days and yet remained without sin at the culmination of the time. That is the man who's resurrected. In Matthew chapter 5, when he opens his mouth in the Sermon on the Mount, begins to say things, to which people say, how is he saying these things? He doesn't speak as one who's a student of the law. He speaks as one almost who is an author of the very law itself. He's the one who's resurrected. In Matthew chapter 6, when he warns us, hey, why?" he teaches us how to pray to the Father. He's our Father, and we can pray to him. And warns us, be careful not to store up so many treasures on earth, but rather store up treasures in heaven. This is the one who was resurrected. In Matthew 7, he is the one who says to us, be careful, because the gate to hell is wide and the highway is straight. But if anyone wants to see God, the path is narrow and the gate is narrow. That is coming from the mouth of one who is resurrected. And how many many more of these? I suppose we could write a book that would fill the earth with what he said, right? The one who fed 5,000 is the one who's resurrected. The one who walked on water is the one who's resurrected. The one who healed the lame and gave sight to the blind and cast out the demons and resurrected the dead himself is himself resurrected. The one who says one day i'm going to come again and that will mark the end of the world is the one who's resurrected he who said when i return i'm going to sit in the throne and i'm going to separate all of mankind as though i were separating sheep from goats and on that day i will judge all of mankind this is the one who is resurrected matthew doesn't need to give a long story about the resurrection we don't need tons of details about the resurrection we need the punctuation of the fact of resurrection, that make Jesus' words live forever. He could, if he was a dead man, his words would have died with him. But he's not a dead man. He is a living man, and so his words live with us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demands decision. That's what it does. You could read any gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You could read them, and you could could wrestle with that miracle, or that saying, or that teaching, or that encounter. You could do that. But when you get to the resurrection of Jesus, now you have to make a decision. Either Jesus is resurrected, In which case, everything he said is really important now. Or he's not. You have to make that decision. A story like this cannot be one that you can just put on the shelf, let's sit back, right? It's not a nice story. The claim of the story is that the Son of God came, died for you, and is alive. And that demands decision. Either he is or he isn't. I want to ask you to bow your heads, and as we go to the Lord in prayer... I, I, and I'm in my own heart. I'm trying to be sens- most sensitive to the person who is least familiar with the stories of God. And so I don't presume. And I just, if these are your ears that are hearing this, I don't presume that right now you need to, you have all the information that you need. You feel you need. I, I I'm not trying to stick you with a decision. I'm simply trying to draw out fundamentally that this story is not like other stories and that you ultimately have to decide either he is resurrected and his words stand or He's not Paul says it this way. He says, "If Christ is not resurrected, we have wasted our lives. We are to be the most pitied of all people because we're living we're living and striving for a hope in God that does not exist. If Christ is resurrected, there's hope. The light of freedom from our sin is visible. The gate of paradise has been opened. it's there and God loves us, if Christ is not resurrected, then something is still wrong. Either you are still in your sin, or God does not love us. Lord, we recognize that in this life, you ultimately call us to decisions. Lord, and we thank you that this is the one that we, we have a story that tells of your salvation and love. That's the story we're being called to make decisions about, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that on this resurrection day we might, we might know the risen Christ and how he punctuates his life and also how it stands alongside of the life in the spirit that we now have. Lord, we proclaim before you that your son is risen. In faith, Lord, we testify that even now he stands at your right hand. That he alone is worthy. That the lamb who was slain is seated on a throne. And Lord, we thank you that through this we can call you father and that we can call him friend. That the spirit you've given us counsels us and comforts us, Lord. In this we have hope because he is risen. And for that we call it good news, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.